The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. Marvelous. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. Yes, it's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And it's Friday. It's The remedy for boredom has arrived. Some weeks I introduce with the cowbell. Some weeks I don't because some weeks I just don't feel like it. You can't use it every single time. If there's one thing I have to tell you, you can't always have a... Yes! The podcast of the people. The people's podcast is on the air. We got former WWE superstar Chris Nowinski, and he's now a concussion expert. He knows everything about concussions in sports. He's coming up. I'm excited to have you guys here. I mean, how are you, Jericho-holics? Always a blast to talk to you twice a week. Last, uh, last Wednesday was our 20th show. What was your favorite show? Hit me up on the Twitter! At Talk is Jericho, and let me know what shows you liked. I am uh, always open to more suggestions. And also, keep your eyes open because you might get a chance to get the number to call in and ask me a question. The big thing over the last few weeks is the WWE Network just opened up, and I'm getting all these tweets and texts from people that are watching, uh, re-watching some of their favorite Chris Jericho moments or matches or seeing them for the first time. And I guess there is a WWE countdown, uh, one of the shows that they have on the network where they're talking about uh, the entrance songs. And I mentioned that I didn't know the lyrics to my entrance song. And someone was like, I can't believe you don't know. I was like, I really don't. I mean, I came out to the damn thing for, you know, 10 years or 15 years or whatever it is. And I have no idea what the words to the song are. So I thought it would be fun if I went online and got the lyrics to the song. And read them out to you live. And I did not read this first. This is the first time I'm ever reading this. So uh, it's, 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 it's real for both of us at this point. Okay, so it's lyrics to Chris Jericho, Break the Walls Down. Come on, Jericho. You know I gotcha. Yeah. Break the walls down. Break down the walls. For those about to rock and what you want. <laughs> All right, so there's an ACDC reference. Baby, you know you're Judas, and I'm your priest. Judas Priest reference. Baby, what I got is not from the least. Bring it through the stage in the rage of the beast. Yeah, boy. Step in the arena and break the wall down. I know that one. Step in the arena and break the wall down. So good. You know I got you. So right. Yeah, yeah, boy. I wake up from a deep sleep, and you're all weak. Yeah. You're living in the agony of defeat. So obviously I beat the shit out of you while I was sleeping. I am the master of your whole heap. I am the pack that flock you like sheep. What is that? Let's read that again. I wake up from a deep sleep. You're all weak. You're living in the agony of defeat. I am the master of your whole heap. I am the pack that flock you like sheep. I guess flock you like sheep is probably some kind of a play on words. It's going to be like, you know, Another F word that ends with a K. 
Uh, all those sheep, apparently, uh, according to the lyricist, are, are very good at fornicating. Because I'm going to flock you like a sheep. And I'm the master of your whole heap. What does that mean? Like your heap of garbage? Or is this like a Uriah Heap fan club, the band from the 70s? I'm the master of the heap? I'm not sure what that means. Step into the town and break the wall down. Your heartbeat is the only sound. Step into the light and then you'll know you were stopped and dropped by the walls of Jericho. Okay, that's not bad. What you gonna do, Jericho? You're coming down. Feel me now, Jericho. Can't stop. Uh, feel me now. Break the walls down. Can't stop, Jericho. So as if somebody's threatening me in the middle of my own song, apparently. What you gonna do, Jericho? You're coming down. Feel me now, Jericho. Uh. Hmm. You're coming down. Feel me now. That's some kind of that's some kind of sexual thing. It doesn't really make sense. For those about to rock, set the clock. For those about to jump, I'm all pumped. For those about to go, watch me flow, break down the walls of Jericho. So now I guess I'm doing rap now, where I'm going to watch me flow. Yeah, boy. Wow. What you want, I'll break you down. What you got, Jericho, all around. All right, so not exactly uh, Jim Morrison-type uh, lyrics here. So I thought I would continue this on. I, I remember... Uh, Billy Gunn's song back in the Attitude Era was called Ass Man. Although apparently it's called Mr. Ass Man because that was his, his nickname, the Ass Man. So let's go check out Billy Gunn's lyrics. And once again, I have not read these prior to uh, doing this right now. I'm an ass man. Yeah, I'm an ass man. Yeah, in parentheses. I love to love him. I love to kick him. I love to shove him. I love to stick him. Listen, man, I don't want anybody sticking my ass. You, you, you dig? I love to flaunt him. I love to watch him. I love to pick him, and I'm going to kick him. Okay, so he loves asses. He kicks asses. He shoves asses. He sticks asses. He flaunts asses. He watches asses. He picks asses, and he kicks asses. Because I'm an ass man. Yeah, I'm an ass man. Yeah, I'm an ass man. Oh, in parentheses, I'm an ass man. So many asses, so little time. Only a tight one can stop me on the dime. I'm a lover of every kind. The best surprises always sneak up from behind. (laughs) Billy Gunn's uh, song was about anal sex, people. Yes, I'm an ass man. I'm an ass man. I'm an ass man. I'm an ass man. Buns of glory. Buns of steel. Your lies won't give away the truth of how I feel. What does that even mean? Buns of steel, but you're lying. You lying buns of steel bitch. It won't give away the truth of how I feel. And that bitch could be for a girl or a guy, apparently. You walk behind me, I feel the heat. That's why the girls don't walk behind me down the street. Who is writing this? You walk behind me, I feel the heat. That's why the girls don't walk behind me down the street. So you're actually detecting ass heat from behind? Yeah, I'm an ass man. I'm an ass man. Oh, yeah, I'm an ass man. Oh, I love to lick him. I love to kick them. I love to shove them. I love to stick them. I love to flaunt them. I love to watch them. I love to pick them, and I'm going to kick them. I'm an ass man. Yeah, I'm an ass man. Yeah, I'm an ass man. Oh, in parentheses. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a pro wrestler, a male pro wrestler, a male entertainer, a male WWE superstar, and I heard those lyrics night after night, I would feel pretty damn embarrassed. So, Billy Gunn, kudos to you for uh, <laughs> living with that for so many years. Maybe you were like me. I, I, listen, I, I, can't, uh, I, I can't call the kettle black here. I didn't know what my lyrics are, and maybe he didn't know what his were either. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he just, well, then again, he did hear, I'm an ass man. I love to stick him. You, you can hear that, obviously. Let me just go on the record saying I don't like to stick asses of the men. All right. Uh, one more that I heard, I got rumors that Zack Ryder's uh, lyrics for his song were kind of funny too, so printed them out. song is called O Radio, and once again, have not read these until this moment. Woo, 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 you know it. O Radio, tell me everything you know. I like to sing with the radio. I like to play it real loud. I like to drive with the top down, rolling like thunder, always drawing a crowd. All right, not bad, pedestrian, but... Every babe's going to want a piece of me, yeah. I stare into the mirror. I like the things I see. 
Oh, radio, tell me everything you know. I will believe your every word. Just tell me so. I see the look in their eyes. I see desire in their lies. Lies, 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 lies in their lies. Oh, yeah. I'm going to drink some beer tonight. Yeah. Going to get some girls I like. I'm going to wear my pants real tight. All the girls are going to treat me just right. Wow. This is really bad. Jim Johnson, are you responsible for this? Shame on you. They don't think I see them stare at me. No, I stare into the mirror. I like the things I see. Ha ha! That was real, by the way. Ha ha. Oh, radio, tell me everything you know. I will believe your every word. Just tell me so. I see the look in their eyes. I see desire in their lies, 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 lies in their lies. I like to sing with the radio. God knows I could be a rock star. I'm sure all you girls want to know how you can meet me. You know who you are. I feel your eyes so locked on me. God, I wish I could be a rock star. Ha ha! I like to sing with the radio. I like to play it real loud. I like to drive with the top down, rolling like thunder, always drawing a crowd, because I'm a cool cat. Yeah, that was my own uh, scatting. Every babe's going to want a piece of me, yeah. I stare into the mirror. I like the things I see. Oh, radio, tell me everything you know. I will believe your every word. Just tell me so. I see the look in their eyes. I see desire in their lies, 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 lies in their lies. I mean, come on. That is genius. Not. <laughs> Jericho patented Raspberry for all of those awful, awful lyrics. But like I said, I can't, uh, I can't throw stones since I didn't know what my lyrics were either. One more patented Jericho Raspberry, by the way. Oscar Myers created a bacon-scented app for the iPhone. It emits a small puff reminiscent of bacon. The app itself produces the sound of bacon sizzling in a pan. Oscar Meyer, the hot dog guys, or I guess they're moving into bacon, says the aroma-producing device won't be sold in stores and their quantities are limited. Listen, I know bacon's all the thing, all the rage. I like bacon. I like to eat it every morning for breakfast. Don't need an app that's going to sizzle like bacon or... Emit the smell of bacon. If you smell like bacon, it's bad news. It means you're a carny or from Switzerland, maybe. Seems like Switzerland would smell more like cheese, I guess. So I'm giving another big Jericho patented <laughs> to the Bacon Senate app, along with the WWE lyrics for Ass Man, Break the Walls Down and Old Radio. But I will give a patented Jericho, yay, for Chris Nowinski, former WWE superstar and concussion expert. But first, The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. And on the line with me right now is a guy I haven't talked to in probably, I don't know, 10 years or so, but I have the utmost respect for him because of what he has done after his wrestling career. I got Chris Nowinski right here. Chris Harvard. What's going on, man? How are you, Chris? Good to talk to you after all these years. I know. It's so funny because I think one of the times I remember, maybe we were driving to Atlanta or Atlanta Airport or something. Was it, was it you, me, and Eddie driving one time? Yeah, your memory's better than mine. I just, <laughs> I just, I think we were. I think there was a snowstorm in Little Rock, and you, me, and Eddie drove from Little Rock to Atlanta to catch a flight or something like that. And we always used to bust your balls because you were like the, the 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 young boys we called it in wrestling, like the rookie, the young guy. But you're always, uh, you know, always t- took it with a cool grain of salt, and you always had a uh, had a smile on your face as we were busting your balls. <laughs> well, you guys are all hilarious. So <laughs> it was funny. So, and that was back. I mean, that was back when you were wrestling in the WWE, and it's been I don't know, probably seven or eight years since since, since you did. Um, you actually had to retire from wrestling because you had a concussion. But let's talk about your time first of all in the WWE before we get into all the great work that you did with the Sports Legacy Institute, which you started after you had this concussion in the WWE. But you were literally a Harvard graduate and got into wrestling, not exactly the uh, standard type of guy that gets into the business. No, no, Harvard, you know, has produced six presidents, but only one 
<laughs> one pro wrestler, and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> so uh, how did you decide that you wanted to get into wrestling? And obviously, being a very smart guy, uh, did your parents get mad at you when you said, I have a Harvard degree, but I'm not going into becoming a lawyer or a doctor. I'm going to become a wrestler? You know, I told them not to tell me what they thought because <laughs> <So that>, <laughs> I was – I was, you know, I hedged when I went in, of course. So I, I had a Harvard job. I was a consultant in the pharma biotech space with a bunch of other, you know, Ivy League guys. But I was sitting in a cubicle for 60 hours a week, renting my brain to the highest bidder by the hour. Right. And it just didn't seem like what I should be doing with my early 20s. And I was just lucky that the um, the owner of the company actually was friends with people like J.J. Dillon and Jerry Jarrett from Wow. Back in the old days, right. uh, when he when he represented a, a group that was trying to buy uh, the AWA, we met all these guys back then. Oh, okay. And so he literally made a call to, uh, to Jarrett and I think then to Dylan and, and said, "I got you know." He was like, "You know, this job will always be here for you, but I think you'd make a great wrestler." And I <laughs> and I became a huge fan in college. Um, you know, I wasn't actually allowed to watch it growing up. My mom didn't like it. I didn't have any brothers to help me fight that battle. And um, But my roommates in college loved it, and so I was hooked. I thought it was the greatest form of entertainment in history. And I and I thought that I'd never seen people look like they were having so much fun on the job. Right. And so when he said, I think you should do it, I said, I'll take a shot at it. So he literally made a phone call, and, and a couple weeks later I was down um at the power plant, Mr. Wonderful beat me up for a day. <laughs> and then he said, oh, you know what, I think you should stick with this. And, of course, by, I had to get my shoulder reconstructed. By the time I was healthy again, um, WCW was you know, hiring freeze, and, of course, went out of business. Right. So I ended up finding Killer Kowalski School in Boston and you know, started attending the classes and just said, this is just so much fun, and it's such a, cha- it's such a challenge beyond what the work world was. Where I, I thought I still had something in me to give it a go. Hmm. So you actually had trained in Kowalski's school before you ended up, because you started in the WWE with Tough Enough, correct? Right. I had been at Kowalski's for six weeks before they oh. announced Tough Enough. So, and how did you get involved with Tough Enough? Yeah, so, so, well, it was interesting. So, you know, Kowalski's school was old school. And so I already had the attitude that reality show is the wrong way to get into the business. You're not going to pay your dues. It's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I had a sober up moment of, well, you know, if my goal is to get to WWE, I should send in a tape. Mm-hmm. So I decided to send in a tape, had footage of my one match I'd had at that point. Um, you know, and I, it was actually, if you have the Tough Enough DVD, which I know everybody does. Of course. You can see it. And uh, it was some, some of my finer work. Uh, it was pretty funny. <laughs> so I, I kind of made up that I was an outcast at Harvard and the nerds had beat us up and I was having snowball fights with kids in, in Harvard Yard. And Anyway. <laughs> I got a call the next day when I was set in saying, come down for the tryout. And, you know, I, I made the cut and the rest is history. What was uh, Killer Kowalski like? You know, he was the nicest guy in the world. Um, you know, by the time I got there, he wasn't necessarily in the ring so much, although he'd show you, like, get a claw and he would, uh, you know, he would still talk a lot about psychology. And, um, you know, he was just, uh, you know, being a Polish guy myself, he was a, <laughs> an idol. And he I just, I just remember him being just the, the, the most genuinely nice guy you could imagine. How would he run his school? Obviously, he probably couldn't get in the ring and bump with you. No, so at the time I was there, a guy named Mike Hollow was running it. Okay. And, you know, I thought Mike was a really good trainer. He really he really ran it uh, very strictly, um, a lot of energy. Uh, and it really did feel like a club. Like you were with uh, 30 guys who all had the same goal and a great, great deal of respect for each other, and it was a good way to come up. And I think that's partially why that school has produced so many uh, wrestlers and made it to the big show. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, even though Kowalski wasn't training, it's still the name value and still him sitting there watching you. It's similar to when I went to the Hart Brothers camp. There really wasn't any hearts around, but it was still, you know, the name value of it still got you kind of a little bit of respect, at least from the start. Right, right. So what was your experiences on Tough Enough then? Obviously, you've had six weeks with Kowalski and you come into Tough Enough. Uh, you know, uh, how was it kind of learning the, the, the business on the fly on a reality TV show? <laughs> uh, you know, outside of the six hours of training we would do every day, you know, which when you got to hang out with Al Snow and, and, and Taz and really, you know, learn the craft, which was the coolest thing in the world. And, I, you know, I couldn't imagine a better way to train. The rest of it was just hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if you've ever uh, been forced to have your, your, your life uh, filmed 24 hours a day. Uh, from the morning morning you woke up, the camera from flying in your room when they saw on the camera that you were awake and watched you cook breakfast, and you couldn't 
you couldn't talk to anybody without them listening in on your calls. Uh, and then, you know, the people in that house, <laughs> you know, some of the people, I'm, you know, a couple people I'm still in touch with, but most of them I didn't have a whole lot of respect for. <laughs> you know, they can't, because I, the way I looked at it, they all said, I'd always, I've always wanted to be a wrestler, I've always wanted to be a wrestler. But outside of me and Josh, uh, you know, who's still announcing, That's right. not a single one of them had ever made an effort to find a wrestling school. Hmm. So I was immediately, you know, th- I was thinking about all the guys who I knew, few of them, like, sleeping in their cars, who, you know, traveled, you know, you know, driven from across the country to go to Kowalski School and pay their dues. And these kids literally talking like they, like they cared, but they didn't really care. They just wanted to be on TV. So that, I think that was... My my lack of respect for a few of them, I think, was the genesis for uh, Chris Harvard being a heel. <laughs> but, but, I mean, th- that was one of the reasons why you started, you know, I mean, w- traveling with, with Eddie and I, for example, we wouldn't travel with just anybody. I mean, I think you were starting to get a lot of respect from the guys because you, you might have come in as kind of a you know funny gimmick or the tough enough thing or, or Harvard, but we could tell pretty early on that you did have respect for the business and you did appreciate it. And that goes a long way when you first come into you know to such a tightly uh, tightly knit world like the WWE locker room. Well, it's very kind of you to say. Um, you know, I, I did and I still do. You know, have a tremendous amount of, of respect for for what you know. No one, you really can't appreciate what the guys do and what they go through uh, until you're in there. But right. uh, I was lucky that people had set you know made sure my you know. Coming through the football world is, is similar, and mm-hmm. I had my head straight uh, going in. Well, and I mean, and you did you did quite well um, from basically from the time you got into the WWE. Tough enough was fine. You didn't win, but you still showed what you could do. You're a big guy, obviously very intelligent. You come into the WWE. How, how was that? You know, making your debut on Raw and working with guys like Regal and, and Bradshaw and those type of guys. Uh, did you feel that you were, uh, were you, once again, still learning? Did you enjoy those times working with those guys? Did you feel like you, you kind of held up your end? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't make any, I mean, you know, outside of being part of one of the worst matches of all time, uh, which wasn't <laughs> necessarily my fault. Um, <laughs> that, I, was, I that was you and, and Jackie Gaeta versus Bradshaw and Trish Stratus, correct? Yeah, wow, it's amazing you remember. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one, like, ma- worst match of the year in all the polls. Yes, it is still top five of all time. <laughs> <laughs> what went wrong? Um, what went wrong in that match? Jackie froze. Oh, uh, okay, gotcha. She just froze, and she just started, not, you know, was bumping wrong. and you know, The, you know, the <laughs> domino effect from there, right? Yeah, exactly. But, um, no, but I, I do have to say that uh, coming off of Tough Enough, it, uh, Al Snow has told, told me later on how great, it, how important it was for me to lose. Mm-hmm. Because one of, one of the magic things about uh, reality television is back in 2001, no one knew what was real and what wasn't. You know, these days we all assume it's all sure, of course. But back then, people thought it was real, and for the most part, that show was, except for it was edited selectively. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Al told me that I had so much. Uh, he was a good thing that it took six months for me to make it to the show after the finale. Because I had so much actual heat from the boys, because <laughs> so, many, so many of them thought I was actually Chris Harvard and a total jerk, and that, that I didn't have respect <laughs> for the business, because that's how I was edited to be a bad guy in the reality show. Right. So even even the boys, some of the boys didn't quite get that there was the gap. So I'm, I was lucky, but but guys like you, uh, you know, gave me that opportunity to to do it, and you know, guys like Regal and Bradshaw giving me their trust. I mean, it was it was the most scary thing in the world to be out there in, in front of those live audiences and on TV, you know, having real, honestly only been working for 18 months and having maybe 30 matches under my belt. Yeah, that's, it was uh, pretty bad. Well, that's still the fact. I mean, that's kind of, it was, once again, not your fault if there was any issues with your working style because you were learning on the fly on live TV, but you were able to keep it together because of your personality, which was always very good. I would say you had a, a very promising a career ahead of you. Would you Would you agree with me on that? Uh, you know, yeah, I, I think I, I could have been a contender. <laughs> so when did you, uh, you know, I don't know if you know if you can even pick, uh, pick a time, but when did you feel that you had your first concussion? Well, you know, my first concussion in wrestling uh, that I remember, and, and I only started counting them after I got my last concussion. Wow. So, you know, part of the whole reason I've gotten into this is because I didn't realize I was getting concussions throughout my sports career and my wrestling career until uh-huh. I got one that was so bad and that I lied about for five weeks that it ended my career. So the first one I remember was actually the last episode of Tough Enough that we filmed in the ring where Taz literally gave me a welcome to the business and just shot on me mm-hmm. and closed on me in the face and then started kicking me in the head 
and gave me a concussion. Wow. Uh, you know, he didn't think anything of it because it's just like the way he was born. Yeah, old school, old, st- old school yeah. style, right? Yeah, so that was my first one. But, but, how, but how did you know that you had a concussion? You said you were counting them. Like, what exactly constitutes a concussion? Yeah, so, so the, the moment I learned, and it was, it was when I met a guy named Dr. Robert Kent, who's you know, one of the world's experts who I now work with closely. Um, he was the eighth doctor that had assessed me after this last concussion, trying to understand why my headaches wouldn't go away. Mm-hmm. And he, he literally, you know, the first seven doctors would say, how many concussions have you had before this one? And my answer was always zero, because I'd never been diagnosed. And I always figured a concussion, either knocked out or someone has to tell you you have a concussion. So Dr. Kanty says, well, take out the word concussion. How many times were you hit in the head and you saw stars or you were dizzy or you were confused or you had double vision or you had a ring in your ears? They went through this long list, and I was laughing. I was like, well, that happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. you know, those are just dings. Those are bell ringers. And I didn't realize that's just another name for a concussion. And these seemingly mild, temporary disturbances of brain function were actually brain injuries. Uh, that where you know your brain's just powerful and can write itself relatively quickly, but you're still damaging the actual tissue. Mm-hmm. So, so I was able to look back and remember. Well, when I when Taz was kicking me in the head, like I blacked out. The ceiling went from blue to orange, and it took me honestly five minutes after the match to realize what I'd done to my mouth because I thought I was chewing on sand. Huh. Wow. And I was like, when, when was I around? When was I at a beach? And then I realized I chipped my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. So there's different, obviously different levels of concussion, which, you know, you think, okay, I've got, I got knocked out, I'm dizzy, I've got a headache. That's a concussion. But you can actually have a concussion just when you see stars. That's, that's a minor version of a concussion? Right. And we don't even know necessarily what's minor and what's not. So if you think about, you know, the more you learn about the brain, you realize there's certain regions that are generally responsible for certain things. Mm-hmm. And so you could actually injure part of your brain but you would never notice because it doesn't affect you know, your memory or your balance or your vision or your hearing. But it is. So it's hard to tell from the symptoms you get how bad the damage actually is in your brain. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things we had to overcome. So when you had your, uh, you know, your first concussion, does that make it easier to get uh, more concussions afterwards? Generally, yes. But it's not a linear thing. So there's plenty okay. of people who have bad concussions followed by not so bad concussions. But there, we all know of those guys who start to get concussions every time they're tapped in the head. Once they usually get it to like double digits of diagnosed concussions. And so there's something going on there. But we don't. No one knows what that really means scientifically. Now, a concussion, for, for lack of better term, the definition is that your brain hits the inner 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 wall of the skull or bruises the brain. No, not necessarily. You missed the training I did for the boys in September. I heard about so. it. <laughs> Train me but now. Then, but, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, that's that's the funny thing is that it's amazing that no one's ever stopped us and told us this stuff. I know it's great, absolutely. That we're out there doing things so dangerous. So it's really you know the definition. The definition that people mostly use is a, a temporary change in, in brain function brought on by trauma. Okay. And what, what's actually happening, and there's a lot of ways your brains get injured, but if you think about your axons inside your brain, so you have 100 billion neurons, they're all connected by axons and even finer connections, that if you actually laid them out end over end, it'd be about you know, 100,000 miles or something. These fragile connections can get stretched, and when, especially when your brain twists and centripetal force causes your brain to pull apart. Mm-hmm. And those injuries, you get these little small microscopic injuries to axons, and you also get chemical changes and metabolic changes in blood flow, in, in ions flooding in and outside the cell. Calcium goes inside your neuron and makes it you know, impaired uh, energy mm-hmm. function. So long story short, a lot of stuff goes wrong. It's not necessarily as much from the brain slamming into the skull as it is from the brain violently moving and twisting. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So what was the final straw for you where you knew that you, that you couldn't continue on in wrestling anymore from all these concussions that you had? Well, a couple final straws. The, the last concussion I had, the, my last match was actually over 10 years ago. It was, it was June 2003 mm-hmm. against the Dudley Boys, and it was just an accident in the ring. Got kicked in the head. Um, yeah, we were blacked out, forgot the end of the match, etc. but lied about it. I lied about it for five weeks. Mm-hmm. For five weeks, when I got my heart rate up, I was nauseous. I was having a tremendous time. For, uh, I couldn't remember matches before we went out there, mm-hmm. and I was kind of half, do, half 
you know, doing it. I couldn't finish a workout without getting nauseous, mm. but I kept pushing through because I thought that's, you know, what you're supposed to do. And I figured that's what you were doing. So I, I got to do it too. Right. Like I'm a nobody. Right. So, um, and after five weeks though, out of the blue, I developed sleepwalking and I woke up on the floor of the hotel room in Indianapolis. Wow. Uh, and my girlfriend told me I jumped off. The, she woke up to me standing on the bed. She couldn't wake me up. I was acting out of dreams, sweating, trying to climb the wall. And at and, and one point, I saw something in the dream moving, and I went and tried to jump on it, and I went through the nightstand. And I didn't wake up for another minute. Oh, my and, you goodness. Know, brain injury can dramatically affect your, your sleep, right? Your sleep, your sleep, your body's supposed to be paralyzed. I threw that switch off, and I was suddenly a danger to myself and everybody else. That is, so that was the first time I showed up and told everyone that my head hurt. That is incredible, and, and it's also amazing. I mean, I started wrestling in 1990, and like you said, it was the Wild West, and you just g- grinned and bared it and just took it. Now, I mean, I, I think I mean we'll get into this in a bit, but I think because of the efforts that you and, and, and Dr. Cantu have started, you get you know concussion tested basically you know on a monthly basis, whether they think you have one or not. It's incredible to me that even it was only 10 years ago, but it still got to that point where you were, like you said, jumping off a bed in the middle of the night and not even knowing it. Right. You yeah, know? It, it, it's great. But so, it, so in long story short, you know, I tried to get better, tried to get better. And after a year of nearly daily headaches and I was just like out of my mind, depressed and miserable, I said I couldn't go through another year like this. So I told him, like, even if I, my headache goes away, I can't come back. Okay. So how old are you at the time? 24, 25? 24, yeah. Okay. So you're 24 and your career is done. What 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 do you do? What did you do? Like, what was your your mindset? Was your plan? <laughs> was there one? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I didn't have so much of a backup plan. Um, so it was it, one one thing that benefited me was that you know WWE uh, didn't just cast me off. So mm-hmm. they switched me over to community service role, and so you know I do like thirty or forty appearances a year, like with SmackDown, your vote and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get real in some of those programs. So that was, I had a little bit, you know, I didn't just get cut off from like my network. Um, after about a year of being injured, I actually went back to that consulting firm that sent me off into wrestling mm-hmm. with my damaged brain, who so now they felt they had to employ me. <laughs> so I did that part-time, you know, like kind of building the hours as my head got better because I literally couldn't handle a full day if you paid me a million dollars. And then um, when I learned about the concussion problem. So Dr. Cantu kind of explained to me, you know, if you rest your concussions, you're, you know, you don't get so much damage and, you know, there's these long-term consequences you should be worried about. I, I was like offended that yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. And I was, I couldn't believe that nobody else knew that either. So that's when I thought, well, you know what, while, while I'm getting better, I might as well take a shot to try to change this culture because it doesn't have to be this way. And guys are, you know, people are really dying from whether it's, you know, in the short term or the long term. So I started writing a book uh, that became Head Games Football's Concussion Crisis that came out in 2006, and that was the beginning of all this stuff. So you actually wanted to get into the into the concussion world in the NFL? Because there really wasn't there really wasn't a track record of concussions in the WWE at that point in time, but there definitely was in the NFL and for years prior to that. Right, and and the real issue for me was, you know, there's not kids wrestling. Now, they shouldn't be. Like, oh. they all feel pretty explicitly that, you know, before you're 18, you shouldn't get in that ring. But, you know, football was built on 4 million kids a year going out and banging heads and being lied to mm-hmm. about the consequences. And that, that, that was about, that, that offended me, and I thought that needed to change. Well, and it, it's funny because, I mean, my experience with concussions before, actually, before I heard about you was, I mean, Bret Hart's career was ended by right. a concussion, which wasn't really uh, trumpeted at the time. I mean, people within the business knew, but people outside the business didn't know. And then the other example was Brett Lindros, who was Eric Lindros's younger brother, who was apparently supposed to be even better than Eric, but his career ended after one or two seasons because of multiple concussions as well. So that's right. all that I knew as far as concussions. What did you discover when you when you wrote your book about head games and about the NFL? Um, did you find out some information or so, some some scary things that you didn't know? Yeah, yes. I mean, some of the real eye opening statistics, you know, included uh, you know ninety percent of concussions and still to this day are not diagnosed, and mm-hmm. that's why we didn't think it was a big problem. But everybody was getting them. Another thing was how strong the evidence was that you you know we should never be putting guys back in the game which was the standard of care at the time. Like, once you woke up from being knocked out, you were good to keep playing. And it, the science said that was killing brain cells like crazy. 
and it didn't, you know, so I thought that was a problem. And then the other big thing was long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, you know, there was this giant black hole in medicine that no one has ever really studied the long-term consequences of repetitive brain trauma. It was called the disease that we're now seeing in all these former, um, you know, football players, uh, military veterans, uh, hockey players, uh, you know, wrestlers like Chris Benoit, which I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, is called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But it was named punch drunk in 1928 because it was so prevalent in boxers. Wow. I mean, everyone knew boxers got it. Yeah. But for some reason, the world never investigated all the other things that people do to bang their head thousands of times to think, would football causes, what other sports cause this? And now we're finding out they do. So there was never even a center at a hospital or university in the world dedicated to the study of CTE until we created ours at BU in 2008. So uh, so that was what blew me away, is that nobody's paying attention to the fact that this is out there. And at that time, two NFL players had been studied after they died, and both had this disease, and still no one was talking about it. And the NFL was, and the NFL was denying that it existed. And that was what, what really made me go after that. So h- how did you start the, the Sports Legacy Institute then? So, you know, I honestly, when I wrote the book, I thought that would be my penance. For, for ignoring my concussions, and I could, you know, I wouldn't even stay in, in the concussion world. But I, you know, I realized that no one really, if no one reads your book, no one cares. And so yeah. I hadn't really given it a, a, a shot. And I also realized that it was the study of brains after people died that was going to convince people that this was real. Mm-hmm. It actually was, you know, concussions are invisible for the most part, but CTE was black and white. You can see it. So literally. Three weeks after the book came out, Andre Waters, the former Philadelphia Eagles strong safety, shot himself in the head at 44. Mm-hmm. And I Googled his concussion history and found he was quoted saying he stopped counting at 15 and would just sniff smelling salts and go back in. Wow. And I just, you know, my, just my spidey sense just went on, like, I bet you he had CTE. Mm-hmm. And so, long story short, I realized I learned how to track down a brain for study, and ended up calling his mother and getting permission to have his brain wow. analyzed. And, and he had the disease. And the other thing I did was I said, "No, this is true. People need to hear about it." And so I was able to work my network and get the New York Times to put it on the front page. Wow. I mean, like you said, I mean, it's amazing to me how much uh, information we have about this in 2014 that wasn't there in 2002. Um, I actually even read um, an article in Rolling Stone. I thought you were in it. They're talking about CT and talking about how the you know the the, the you know the exploration is has has gotten so so high tech nowadays. Talking about uh, Mike Webster from for the Pittsburgh Steelers that that had some kind of disease for years where he would forget who he was or where he was and wake up in a in a in a bus depot you know sleeping on a bench because he didn't know how to get home and how he used mm-hmm. to tase himself because he had so many issues with voices in his head, etc. Did you examine his case as well? No, he was actually the first NFL player. So he was the one I read about, and then another one that made me say, gosh, there's something to this, mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. Need, but we need to find more cases. Because at that time, Webster and the other guy had both just died in just outside of Pittsburgh. Right. So the medical examiner there was just curious about it and said, you know what, we should look. But there were, you know, there were no other cases coming. So now, seven years later, we have 190 brains for study. But at the time, no one was actually going out and trying to find them. We're talking to Chris Lewinsky from the Sports Legacy Institute about concussions and all of the huge advances that he has helped to spearhead over the last five or six years. We'll be right back. First, we're going to talk to our sexy sponsors. Right here on Talk is Jericho. Stick around. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This this is Talk is Jericho. We're back with Chris Nowinski, Chris Harvard, as he is known or was known in the WWE days. Talking about all of the uh, amazing work and all the the uh, findings that you've discovered over the last few years. Now, how does it work when you're calling somebody's mother to ask them to study their son's brain? I mean, how does that conversation go? <laughs> you know, it, it, surprisingly, it, it, it has been, for the most part, for the hundreds of calls I've made over the year, years, it's been positive. 
because uh, people realize we're not trying to take advantage of anyone. That's why we go to a nonprofit through a university. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually, they usually want to know what happened, because a lot of the cases we get, you know, it's because the people died in, in suicide or accidental situations or too young, or, or they actually clearly had dementia or other problems. Mm-hmm. And so the families usually have suffered so much mm-hmm. that they're happy that someone's looking into this. So, you know, I, I used to have a script, and I used to just, you know, be scared to death to make these calls, but the mm-hmm. families have been so supportive that it's much easier. Well, I mean, you were a pioneer because nobody was doing this. And, you know, it's interesting to me because it, it definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is it's very close to home. As as you know, Chris Benoit, a very good friend of mine, uh, but oh, you spent a lot of time with him over the years. And he was told me about all the concussions that he had. And, you know, when we started to hear that a concussion could be when you just have stars in your eyes, he was the same. It's like I've. I've had tons of concussions, and me, my myself, Chris Jericho, have had plenty of concussions myself. Thankfully, none of them very serious. When you first heard about Chris and and the you know the the, the tragedy that happened with with him, did you suspect right away that it was concussion related syndrome uh, symptoms? Yes, I did. I, I remember where I was. I was I had just you know left the. the Capitol, I presented uh, to four senior Democratic uh, leaders in Congress and the Senate mm-hmm. uh, on this stuff, and I was having lunch or dinner with the New York Times reporter, and I got the, you know, my phone blew up, you know, mm-hmm. while I was found, you know, and, I, and I, and I, you know, the sad thing is I remembered a conversation we had six months prior. Mm-hmm. So we were at uh, Manchester uh, Arena, and I was still going to local shows, and I was still working with WWE, and and he had, he was the only guy in the whole locker room who was interested in the book I was writing at the time. Mm-hmm. He was the only guy who sat down and said, you know, tell me more about what you're learning about concussions. Right. He he asked me how many I'd had. I, I asked him. Of course, he said the same thing he said to you. He had more than he could count. And he actually, for the first time in our relationship, you know, I'd known him for five years, he gave me his phone number and he asked me to call him. Mm-hmm. And when I did call him uh, about a week later, you know, he was angry when he answered the phone. And he had, you know, no, either no recollection or, or just didn't want to talk to me. So it was very quick. Yeah, how you doing? Good. Okay. Well, listen, I'm busy. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the time in the locker room, it was a bit of a cry for help. Like he knew something was wrong with him. Right. Uh, right. And he wanted more information. But I caught him at a bad moment, and we could never help him. And I felt tremendously guilty about that after hearing about this. Well, I mean, and, and you weren't the only one, because I, I used to get the same same from him, where I would call him the Loch Ness Monster. I've discussed this on the show before. He he would surface for seconds and then go down back underneath, and you would never be able to to, to get in touch with him or talk to him or see him. You know, he would call me and say, hey, give me a call. I'll be up for the rest of the night. i call him back literally like two or three minutes later and never hear from him, you know, again. Wow. Um, did... I mean, it's it, it's interesting to me because back in 2007 when this happened, nobody knew you know what the reasons were for it. There were a bunch of different you know theories, this, that, and the other thing. But it's amazing that had that happened or had those symptoms that he was having happen now, we would know for sure what the problem was. But even seven years ago, it was like I imagine the first person that ever had cancer. Went to the doctor and right. said, hey, I've lost 30 pounds in a week. What's going on? Oh, don't worry about it. Next thing you know, the guy's dead. Now, in this day and age, we know right away, you have cancer. I think had he had those same symptoms in this day and age, we would probably know what the problems were. Well, exactly. He'd be, he'd be you know, receiving care. He'd even know that he wasn't like, you know, quote unquote, going crazy, that there was something going on in his brain. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have been a different outcome. When you have, um, you know, the CTE, do you hear voices and do you... Do you uh, does it give you major swings of depression or, or or dementia and lunacy? I mean, I know you mentioned that, but talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah, voices not not as much. Uh, you know, but the, the three things that like the general three things that most people deal with mm-hmm. uh, include memory problems and cognition issues. So you have problems with short term memory. You you have trouble concentrating or executive function. Mm-hmm. Um, then you also see uh, behavioral problems. So this this is usually the first thing to show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, show up, you know, as early as people's twenties and thirties. They start being short tempered. They start having impulse control issues. They start being aggressive. You know, it's very frequent that guys get, you know, and you, this you you've seen this. I'm sure they get angry. They get really really angry for something very small, and a minute later, it's like they forgot they were even mad. Right. They don't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then um, 
and then the other problem you get is mood disorder. So you do get that depression. You do get kind of sometimes some bipolar symptoms in different people. I mean, the, the interesting, the hard thing about this disease, though, is because, because it started by trauma, it looks different in everybody's brain. It generally starts in the frontal lobe, and then over 20 years, it generally gets to another area of your brain called the medial temporal lobe, where uh, part, there, there are parts that are very important to memory and emotional control. Mm-hmm. But because of the frontal lobe aspects have to do with the hits that you individually took, it would, it's kind of a little different in everybody. And by, only by the end does it start to look the same in everybody. So when um, kind of going back to Chris, when when you know when all the the stuff went down and everything like that, did you? I mean, I know you contacted Chris's father. Did you get to uh, um, examine Chris's brain? Yes, yes. So I did contact uh, Chris's father. How and, how was uh, he? How was receptive was he when you called? I mean, did you get a hold of him right away? Oh uh, yes, you know it was amazing because I actually held off calling him for a few days mm-hmm. uh, because I just didn't imagine he would be picking up the phone. Right, but I knew he was the guy I needed to get to, and I tried to get to him through multiple other ways to people who actually knew me and knew him, but uh-huh. that never materialized. So kind of at the last minute, I just said, you know what, if it's going to happen, I've got to call. So I called, and he, he answered right away. Hmm. And I told him who I was, and I told him what I thought caused this and what I wanted to do, and he just immediately said, yes, let's do it. Wow. So I was blown away. I never thought in a million years it would happen. So what did you see when you examined his brain? Well, at the time, so there, at the time we looked at four other NFL players, and he was the fifth person, and he was there, his brain was actually more advanced than the NFL guys, who were all older than he was. More advanced as in... So, so the disease starts, like, in, like if you look at like a, a teenager who's got this, they just have little spots in their brain where you can see the, t- the brain tissue falling apart in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And eventually it expands and just, you, know, you see more, like when you see the brain slides, you see more and more brown in different places. Um, so he, more advanced meaning that it had destroyed more of his brain than the other guys. Wow. So there's no doubt in your mind that that is what caused the, the, the you know, actions that he did. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always the question of the the additive effect of you know, if you have additional hormones in your body and mm-hmm. you have brain disease, you might be more likely to be violent where someone else might just be angry. Right. So I don't know if it went a little farther than other people, but no, I have no doubt in my mind, you know, knowing Chris for a few years and knowing how good he was to me, mm-hmm. and knowing how in control he was before, that had he not had the brain disease, that never would have happened. I mean, I can, I can tell you, unfortunately probably 10 other families of brains that we've studied of football players who've tried to kill their family and boxers at various times wow. less successful. So it's, it's something that's, you know, uh, not common, but it's something that's very viable when you have this brain disease. And um, is that involving tau, T-A-O? Is that, is that what the, the actual dis- disease is called? No, it's, so, so it's T-A-U tau. So, Sorry. Um, but it just is whatever. It's not something you learn unless you're sitting in medical school. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a structural protein of your neuron and axon. So mm-hmm. essentially, it's like rebar and concrete. And for some reason, it falls apart. So the actual structure of the axon falls apart. And so it's one of the you know 50, twenty things that go wrong when you get CTE. But it's one that's very well understood because it also happens in Alzheimer's disease, mm. and is very easy to see on these post-mortem examinations because it shows up as this dark, ugly stain. So, so that's, what, that's what's falling apart. Did you contact the WWE after you examined Chris's brain? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of a, it's complicated. Yeah. It's not probably worth going into too much. But, yeah, I mean, um, we, yeah, WWE was, was aware that the studies were ongoing. You know, they, were, they were historically very supportive of the work. Well, it's good because I, I remember you just mentioned earlier how the NFL was in denial at first. And, you know, I, I know that you've worked with the NHL and I know you've worked with the WWE. And it would seem because, you know, because nobody really knew much about this, that I'm sure a lot of them were probably a little bit hesitant at the first at first when you brought them your findings. Right. Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, it's something that very few people understood. I mean, I, you know, I think I think a lot of people's reaction um, was. You know, if this was really real, why is a ex-professional wrestler kind of talking about it, just quote unquote <laughs> discovering it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Third millennium. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, so if you go back to like some of some of the interviews that were done afterwards, you know, I think there was a lot of doubt that CT was was real, that it was accounting for the symptoms that it, it caused. I mean, it was it was early in the research, but you know, so so I think it's been it's been really uh, rewarding to see how how much how 
much WWE is now mm-hmm. supporting, like uh, explicitly supporting this work, both from a workplace safety standpoint, but also, you know, they recently gave us a grant, for, uh, gift, sorry, a gift for $1.2 million wow. to focus on treatment for, uh, focus on developing treatments for this disease. And you, you mentioned earlier that you had a, a big uh, kind of a seminar with, with, the, with the WWE locker room back in September. What was the, um, uh, what were you trying to get across to them before, besides just awareness? Yeah, you know, it, it was a few different ideas, and it's been fun because I, I, I also now train all the kids in developmental, too. Wow. Um, and it's, it was, a lot of it was just career insurance. Mm-hmm. I really did talk about Bret Hart, and I said, you know, I know most of you guys, you know, some of those guys had never seen me wrestler knew who I was. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you know, you don't know me. I, I never got to be anybody. But there have been some of the legends in this in, in this business who had their career, you know, taken away just because they didn't didn't have the ability to recognize mm-hmm. when they were injured and and know that it was okay culturally to take a week or two off so that uh, you know. They could go on and continue to, you know, headline WrestleMania rather than mm-hmm. getting two concussions in a row and having their career end and having the program end and drawing the company up into a, <laughs> you know, a, a problem. And, and and it's great to have the support, you know, with with um, you know Paul Levesque telling everyone, you know, you know, talents are only natural resource. So you know, we can write you out of the storyline or we can get you on a mic for a couple of weeks while your brain recovers. Don't be a hero because this is this is entertainment. It's not sports. Which is the exact opposite of the way that we were brought up, you know, or even even like you mentioned, I mean, yeah, it's like, you know, you just get back in there, shake it off. But even like you mentioned, too, I mean, that's the way that kids are, you know, kind of trained by by their parents when it comes to sports. Is that how have you taken on, you know, the high school world of telling kids it's okay to admit that you're hurt? Yeah, you know, it's so much harder. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking at the concussion conference at the UN last week, and I point out the irony of, you know, the UN, most of their programs they do are there to protect the the weakest mm-hmm. and the most needy, and it's usually children. Right. But if we look at how we spend our money and our time on concussions, 90%, literally for 90% of the money and the resources are spent with pro athletes, mm-hmm. and the kids are left on their own. They don't have doctors that have access to, they don't have any training, their coaches don't have any training. Um, it's, it's really been an uphill battle. And, you know, to get the youth sports world to really even give the kids the respect they deserve to go learn about concussions to make sure mm-hmm. that when a kid gets hit in the head, they identify and don't end up killing them. Right, or, or don't get thrown back in the game and say, you know, shake it off, get back in there. Yeah, I mean, there's hope because, you know, there, are, there is one injury that we finally train people not to suck up mm-hmm. and not to get back in there, and that's neck injuries. Okay. When you, were, when you were younger, you remember someone said to you along the way, by the way, if you Fall, you can't move your arms, or you can't, yeah. uh, your, your neck is killing you. Don't be a hero. <laughs> you right. Go back in. Like, don't move and yeah. go to the hospital. But you have to educate people in that because it's not like neck injuries. Like, when people fracture vertebrae, they, you know, like, and we've seen it in wrestling, like, they don't really realize how injured they are. Uh-huh. It's not that painful. It's not like that debilitating. And so you have to educate people to recognize when that injury happens. And so we can do it with concussions. You just have to get to the kids young. And it really, you know, one of the recent studies that we did that's not yet published, but we found that the number one reason um, an athlete is most likely to report their concussion is if they think their coach they will be supportive of their decision. Mm. So they'll hide it to think their coach will give them a hard time, and they'll tell if they think their coach will reward them I say thank you, and I'm not going to make fun of you for being soft. Right. And unfortunately, too many coaches still make fun of kids for being soft. Well, and, and like we mentioned earlier, I mean, this is something that's becoming so much more and more prominent as far as the knowledge. And I think over the next you know, five or ten years, it will just be the way that it is, like putting on a seatbelt or no smoking or you know, putting on a condom right. or whatever. You know, Ten years ago, nobody knew about this stuff. It was almost like fantasy land, and now you've really gone so far as, as to educating everybody about this. Um, let's talk quickly about Junior Seo. Uh, he committed suicide by uh, shooting himself in the chest deliberately seems like he was trying to leave his brain open, but his brain never got studied. Is that correct? No, no, it did get studied. Oh, it did. And what did you find in that? His family sent it to the National Institutes of Health, the federal government, and they brought in a team of uh, doctors to look at it. And they all, you know, he had, he had the disease. He had it as advanced. He probably had it about as bad as Chris. Wow. So do you think it was kind of like he knew that and that's why he shot himself in the chest so his brain could be, uh, could be uh, examined? You know, yeah, you never know, but right. I assume so because that's, I mean, that's, that's supposedly a very painful way to go. 
Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, Dave Duerson, when he when he killed himself, former NFL player, actually left a note asking for us to study it. And wow. Not that we, you know, want anyone to do that, because we don't need the brains that badly, you know. Mm-hmm. We've got plenty, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, you know, I, sometimes I try not to think about, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, because it's just so horrifying. Now, is the only way you can find out if you have CTs by having your brain studied after you die? Well, right now, the only way you can be sure is, is yes, uh, post-mortem. But we're, like, we're on the cusp, I would assume, within a year or maybe two that we can diagnose it in living people. So it's going to open up a whole, oh, yeah. world, a whole new can of worms. Well, I mean, let's say you know somebody's listening that, that doesn't know for sure if they're having these type of symptoms. What exactly should you look for as far as concussions or you know, possibly doing something, you know, so crazy, like some of the guys we've discussed, killing yourself or killing your family. I mean, what what can you be, I guess, what are the warning signs for that? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, generally, uh, you know, the the problem is, you know, there's nothing specific about CTE symptoms to say, if you have this, you have CTE. Like, it could be 50 different things. Mm -hmm. And so if you are having problems with memory and the onset is like in your 30s, 40s, 50s, that's usually too early for normal memory, you know, any normal memory loss, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So that is probably being caused by something in your brain, and you should go see a doctor. I mean, it could be something as simple as sleep apnea or a vitamin deficiency, but it could also be CTE. Um, so, you know, memory problems, I think that emotional control issue, I think the depression issue, a lot of people, they're relatively young, they're dealing with anxiety problems. That general kind of uh, group of behavior, mood, memory, cognition, if you're having problems there and you did take a ton of brain trauma, whether through contact sports or whether through, you know, mm-hmm. 15 concussions like as a cyclist or something, you know, you, you, there's a chance. And I would recommend seeing somebody who deals with either brain injury or the, the neurodegenerative diseases and explain your concern. And there, you can take medication to help with the symptoms. You can't stop the disease, but you can certainly feel better. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you can learn how to you know work around the issues you have. But also having a, you know your family understanding and having a supportive family is also very important. So do do get do seek help if you have concerns. And is that uh, for parents too that might be watching their kids kind of the same same symptoms if their kids play high school football no, or so, hockey? Yeah, we wouldn't expect CTE to be really affecting someone that young. Mm-hmm. So with parents, we really want them to focus on looking for any symptoms of concussion. So the reality is if your kid's in a contact sport, whether it's uh, you know football or ice hockey or lacrosse, probably a third to half will have a concussive event each year, mm-hmm. but only 10% of them are going to tell you. And most of the time it's because we've never told them what to tell us about. You know, they think, just like me, oh, I had double vision for 30 seconds. I wanted to tell you about that. It's fine now. Right. You want to teach them to tell you about that. And that means that the brain, a brain injury happened. That means you need to see a doctor. We actually just created a website, concussionclinics.org, that lists over 500 concussion clinics across the country. Go see a specialist, because the other problem is your average doctor does not know how to treat a concussion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, concussionclinics.org. Well, with all the work you've done, I mean, like you mentioned, you, you've now kind of turned the WWE around. Like, I, it's interesting since uh, the death of Eddie Guerrero and the death of Chris Benoit, how much they've changed as far as you now have heart exams, you now have concussion exams, you now have, I mean, the drug testing is very, the drug testing is very stringent. But I, I would have to say the concussion tests are specifically because of the information that you've provided for them. Uh, you've done the same for the NFL. They even changed one of their rules in 2010 and made shots above the shoulders uh, illegal. Um, do you feel that's because of what they've learned from from the Sports Legacy Institute as well? Yeah, no question. What they've learned from us and a lot of researchers in the field. But, you know, yeah, all these changes seen in the last seven years have been about concerns about brain trauma. How has the NHL reacted? Uh, you know, the NHL is, is in an interesting spot, you know, because... Mm-hmm. They've made a lot of great changes to the game itself. I think the work that Brendan Shanahan has done, yeah. teaching people why certain things are penalized and why it'll make people safer, has mm-hmm. been tremendous. Um, but you know, they're not yet doing any funding on CTE that I'm aware of, um, which I think they kind of owe. We, we've proven four former hockey players had it, guys like Derek Bugard and Bob Probert. Um, you know, so I think you know, I think they're taking care of the guys pretty well now. But I don't know if they're necessarily as much a part of this, you know, people like WWE and the NFL really pouring money into research to solve this problem. Wow. So Bob Probert had it as well. Yes. 
Wow, I didn't know that because he he committed suicide as well, didn't he? He was a heart attack, actually. Okay, heart attack, but he was definitely yeah on on the on the road there. But well, Chris, like I said, man, it, it's it's great to talk to you, and and uh, it's funny because Mick Foley uh, did a article or some kind of a blog where he he made the top ten most successful wrestlers outside of the business. And of course, everyone would think that it's going to be The Rock, but it wasn't. It was you, Chris Nowinski, number one. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. and, and Mick is, is is no dummy either. Good good point on his. I mean, you've done more for the business and more for you know more for humanity than anybody else has out of the business. And and I appreciate all the hard work you've done. That's very kind of you to say. I, I never expected to be above the rock in any list, but uh, <laughs> it's nice to see. Well, Chris, it's good talking to you, man. And if anybody uh, wants more information, they can go to sportslegacy.org. That is Sports Legacy Institute's um, website. And uh, like I said, man, thank you. Very informative and I really enjoyed talking to you. And it's good to good to connect again after all these years. Yeah, definitely. Congrats on and all you've done in the last 10 years. Of course, I've been following closely. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. All right. Take care. All right. It's time to go to the phones. I posted the number a few seconds ago on the Twitter at Talk is Jericho. Keep an eye on the Twitter feed, and you never know when you're going to get your opportunity to call in and ask me anything you want. I got Mike here from Norfolk, Virginia. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing good, sir. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. What's uh, What's your question there, my friend? Well, I just wanted to, I wanted to say something really quick. I met Sipping Norver years ago at the Fozzie Show. I'm the guy that whipped out my ID. I changed my name to Jericho. Nice. Do you remember me? Or not really? Uh, yeah, not really, you know. but... <laughs> <laughs> it was a great show. Anyway. Thank you. Um, with, I mean, obvious reasons Nirvana can't play the Hall of Fame, who do you think should step in if they were up to it and take his spot to sing some songs, kind of like they had to do for GNR? You talking about for Kurt Cobain? Yeah, like if, if you know, Dave and Curse were up to it, who who would you put in that spot to play some Nirvana songs? Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of people I guess you could put in there. I mean, take someone from the Seattle scene. You know, Eddie Vedder would be cool, or Chris Cornell would be amazing. I would actually like to see what I thought I was going to see a few years ago when there was the big buzz about McCartney and Nirvana playing together. I know they wrote their own song, Cut Me Some Slack, but I would love to see McCartney sing some of those tunes uh, along with uh, along with the guys. But I think, I, I doubt Paul would do it. I think the smartest thing would have a couple, like somebody from Seattle, from that Seattle scene to come in and, and, and do it. Who would you like to see? You know what? I, I totally draw a blank. I just don't want Courtney to get up there and sing anything. <laughs> no, I don't think she's going to be anywhere near. <laughs> That's a channel changer for sure. But I'll tell you what, I'm actually going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'll be there in attendance, and I'll have a big uh, report on it the, on, on, on the show after that. So we'll figure awesome. it all out. all the shows, Chris. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for calling in, Mike. Good question, and I uh, appreciate you listening to Talk is Jericho. All right, let's flip on over to Scott from Vernon Hills, Illinois. What's going on, Scott? Hey, not much, Chris. Uh, big fan. It's an honor to talk to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. What's your question? Uh, mine's actually kind of a quick two-parker. Uh, my first question is, uh, after following your career and now with the WWE Network, getting to watch a lot more of your WCW days, I wanted to know, uh, do you have a uh, favorite opponent, a favorite person to work in the ring with? And uh, the second part would be uh, maybe if it's the same person, uh, who, um, what's your favorite match of all time and uh, why? Well, it's always hard when you get questions like this, and I always ask all of my guests the same question. What was your favorite match? You know, Who's your favorite opponents? That sort of thing. Um, you can never really narrow it down to, to one. I just think you know, in stages, if you go, like, I always loved working with you know uh, my early years. I love working with Lance Storm. I love working with Negro Casas from Mexico. Ultimo Dragon from Japan was was amazing. One of my favorite opponents of all time. Uh, I loved working with uh, Juventud Guerrera in WCW. He was he was one of my favorite opponents. Rey Mysterio is always a blast. The Rock is fun. You know, Benoit was great. Edge is great. Cena's great. But probably my all-time favorite, just from a pure chemistry and from stature and the, the things that we accomplished, would be Shawn Michaels. Uh, for, for obvious reasons, we have great chemistry. Uh, we, we bring out the best in each other. Uh, I'm a big fan of his, and I, I, think, I would like to think he's a big fan of mine. And probably the best match, if you had to put a gun on my head, was, would be our, our ladder match we had for the world title. I believe it was in 2008 at the No Mercy pay-per-view. And the reason why I like that the most is because that match was never supposed to happen. That angle was never supposed to happen. It was just supposed to be a one-night thing that we did 
that ended up going seven months and culminated in a match for the world title, which never was on the books when we started. So it was a real testament to how good our angle was and to how uh, how, how far we were able to take it. And even to the point where my, my newest book that comes out on August, uh, October 13th, there's the, the, the many, many stories, that whole entire uh, angle, I, I told it in great detail. So it's one of the big, bigger parts of the book. So you'll be able to read all about it, Scott. Thank you, sir. And I, I just wanted to say that 2008 feud was one of the best things in WWE, actually wrestling history, and uh, Jericho-holic forever. Hey, man, I appreciate that. I appreciate you listening to Talk is Jericho. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for linking to Amazon through the Talk is Jericho page at podcastone.com. Every time you do your shopping that way, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show, so I keep bringing you the Pot of Thunder twice a week for free. There's a lot of money being spent here, guys. I've been talking for a long time today. I need some lozenges. I need some mouthwash. That costs money. When I give a raspberry, uh, I'm losing saliva. I need some gum, blue gum. So there's a lot of expenses on this show, people! So go to Amazon through Talk is Jericho page and kick back some cashola to your boy. And thanks also for hitting that download button. I know there's so many podcasts on the web. There's too many, damn it. I must destroy them all. And thanks to you, I'm on the way to do that. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend to check out the show. They can tell a couple friends. Then they can tell a couple friends. And suddenly we got an army of Jerichoholics listening to the People's Podcast. If you really like it, you can even hit that subscribe button at iTunes so you never miss an episode. It's that easy. The show will come right to your device. You'll get it every week and hear all of the wonderful things that I talked about and told you today. Hey, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next Wednesday. Peace, love, and hugs. Stay hard, stay cool, stay hungry. We love you all. See you next week. Yeah, boy! You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.